Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Outside the front door of the shelter are the five perforated petrol tins that were believed to have been used for scattering petrol on the body of Hitler and of burning it. But there, at any rate, my Soviet friends found no trace of Hitler himself. But there was the body of Goebbels, a shot outside the entrance to the shelter. And walking back across the garden and round the ornate lily pond that lies in the middle of it, we came to a spot at the foot of some wooden steps that lead up into this room. They're just 10 feet from me there by the window as I stand. There, at the bottom of those steps, they found the half-burned body of a man with a lock of black hair on the right-hand side of his face and a little black moustache. And they looked at him more closely, and their doctors came to the conclusion that it was what they call a bad double of Hitler and not Hitler himself. If that is so, then all trace of him has disappeared. And only is left behind this indescribable confusion of smashed woodwork, of bullet holes, of, she- of shell holes, of dust and rubble and filth. And standing in it, these grave, solemn, motionless Soviet officers and guards who now stand guard in this building, which was both the beginning and the end of National Socialism. And uh, it's your host, Adam Sane. Bobby's sitting in. Got it's it. about uh, 10.04 in the morning here. We're doing kind of a special uh, recording. We usually record about like 6 or 7 on a Sunday night, but it's about 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. And uh, because we are calling someone overseas, specifically in France, which is about a seven-hour time difference. So for him, it's the afternoon, and for us, it's the morning. And... Uh, all right, so I uh, would like to thank Microsoft and Skype there for that uh, wonderful 
interruption. Uh, we lost about, I think, about 10 minutes of this show right here in this section. We're replacing this little interruption. Uh, so uh, just to briefly encapsulate what we talked about while we what we didn't record, uh, Gerard is a journalist. Um, he explained that he had worked for Oh, what was it, uh, Sky News and for Reuters, and uh, he had said uh, later in the program, which we actually have recorded, he said he covered his first famine in Africa in 1983. So he's been doing it for, he had done it for about 30 years before he retired. Uh, he had been to so the first Gulf War, the second Gulf Bosnia. War, Bosnia, uh, Afghanistan, he mentioned, uh I think he said that he said something about Somalia possibly too, Somalia. possibly Somalia. So he's worked for uh, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different news services. Has been all over the world, um, and this is what he explained: kind of his his credentials in this little section right here that uh, you're not going to hear. So uh, he we asked him the question: uh, Did you? How did you get into? you know gray wolf how did you you know what interest do you what made you interested in it and he said after he retired he decided to go to um south america and just hang around check it out and said that he one of the first places he went he said he started with the a's and one of the first places he went was argentina and he said that's where he found uh, a lot of these rumors that were going around that hitler had um lived in argentina and died in 1962 and so he and his co-author, Simon Dunstan, started to investigate this. And so then that led <coughs> to our, the question that you'll hear next, which is about, uh, you know, why, how did Hitler, what's the general accepted theory of how Hitler died, and then uh, how does that differ? So that's what we're going to go to right now. I wanted to ask you, Gerard, about the generally accepted version of Hitler's death and what has led you to believe that Hitler did not die in the bunker in 1945? Sure. The generally accepted version of Hitler's death comes from a British historian called Hugh Trevor Roper. Um, Trevor Roper says that after interviewing various bunker survivors, that um, he came to the conclusion that Hitler had shot himself um, and possibly taken cyanide at the same time, and that his girlfriend, possibly his wife, who um, he supposedly married in the bunker, but there's no proof of that, Ava Brown, committed suicide by taking cyanide. The bodies were then taken up into the courtyard of the um, bunker area and uh, covered in petrol. That petrol was then set fire to and the bodies were burned beyond all recognition. Um, it's always been accepted and historians have gone on to requote Trevor Roper throughout. However, at the time... When the Soviet troops actually arrived at the bunker complex, they were embedded, or there was a reporter embedded with them, a man called Thomas Cadet of the BBC, whose audio can be found on the internet for <coughs> want to go looking for it. Um, Cadet says that they found no bodies that could have been Adolf Hitler. There's no mention made of Ava Brown's body, that they had been handed a number of what he said the Soviets called poor doubles of Adolf Hitler, but they had not been burned with petrol. Um, Joseph and Magda Goebbels, who had committed suicide outside the bunker in the garden after having murdered their five or six children in the bunker itself, their bodies were found in the gardens. Um, they'd been covered with petrol and set on fire too as well, but they are both distinctly uh, recognizable. Goebbels mainly because he had what used to be known as a club foot, um, so he had a built-up shoe. 
but both bodies were distinctly recognizable. And there's there's moving pictures of this. Uh, right. Just find. Stalin said that Hitler had escaped to Spain or Argentina. President Eisenhower, or as he was then, General Eisenhower, the commander of um, Allied troops in the theater, said that they had no proof that Adolf Hitler was dead. He was still saying that into the 1950s. Marshal Zhukov, who commanded Soviet troops as they advanced on the bunker, also said that Hitler could have escaped, there was an airfield at his disposal, and that they had found no body that could have been Adolf Hitler's. Hugh Trevor Roper is an interesting character to have been chosen to write the final chapters of the Third Reich and the final chapters of the days of Adolf Hitler. He had done nothing like this before. He had written one biography of a medieval bishop um, from Britain, a man I think called Thomas Cranmer, and then had spent the war working for military intelligence, reading intercepts from German forces overseas. But he was the man chosen, not the FBI, not the head of Scotland Yard, um, not the head of MI5 or anybody else, but this strange little um, military, no, not even military, medieval historian was put in to um, write the final chapters. Well, what's interesting is that two of the people he said that he interviewed, one who's called Hannah Reich, who was a female Nazi pilot um, and very unreconstructed after the war, Reich said that she had never met him. Um, Trevor Roper said that he had, but he'd only actually been given access to limited amounts of interrogation carried out by the American forces post, um, post the collapse of Germany. The other man, um, von Bulow, who was the Luftwaffe adjutant in the bunker, said that he always laughed every time he saw Trevor Roper's material in print because mm-hmm. he had lied to him. And he's on the record in numerous magazine and, and newspaper interviews post-war that he'd lied to him. Um, so, about three, four years ago now, um, also uh, a, an American scientist DNA tested the remains of what the Russians have always said is Hitler's skull, which the FSB, which used to be the KGB, have in Moscow. Well, yeah, I remember that. Of, that, that, that out of a 40-year-old woman, so it can't even be Ava Brown. She was in her 20s at the time. So wow. un- unless Hitler confused us all by cross-dressing for um, the period between 33 and 45, <laughs> it's definitely not the um, skull of Adolf Hitler. So we've been lied to. We've been lied to. Sure. Uh, so how did he get to Argentina? And... Also, what were the preparations that were made uh, beforehand to bring him there? Martin, um, Martin Bormann, who was the head of the party, um, the Secretary of the Reich Chancellery, um, and the head of the SDAP, the Nazi Party, after Hitler, <coughs> had been planning for this since 1943. He recognized after Stalingrad and the battles of that there was going to be a military defeat for the Nazis. They didn't stand a chance. Russia could throw more men at them than they could ever throw back. And the wonder weapons were simply not coming online quickly enough. So Bormann had set up over 700 front companies um, in neutral territories around the world to enable the flight of capital, patents, and people out of Germany, out of Nazi Germany, from 1943 on. Um, In Argentina, they had a very, very fertile um, second home to go to. There were hundreds of thousands of Germans there. Argentina was the only other country in the world to have its own Nazi party. Um, again, you can go on YouTube and look for Nazis in Buenos Aires, and you will see 30,000 of them at one rally in Buenos Aires to celebrate the taking over of Austria in the Angeles. Hmm. Um, also, German uh, military intelligence, the Abwehr, had funded the colonels who took power in 1943 in Argentina, among them Juan Domingo Perón and his wife Eva, 
both of whom, both of whom had been in the pay of German intelligence since 1941. Copies of the check stubs and um, details of their payments that were made from a very brave post-war Argentine journalist. Really? Who recorded wow. this material in a, in a book which isn't available in English called A Tradition of Treachery. Um, so we have, they have a, a, a setup in Argentina which... In, Argentina and Chile and Patagonia in the deep south of um, South America. This, these were virtual German colonies. And even if you go to them today, there are places like San Carlos de Bariloche, where you can <coughs> in the morning go out for coffee and be in Bavaria. I mean, it, it doesn't look anything like South America to anybody um, who's familiar with other parts of it. It looks like Germany or Switzerland or Bavaria, very much so. Um, so they had this place where they could go, where they could disappear. Um, and it wasn't just Hitler and David Brown and Martin Bormann who managed it. Um, we think that almost 100,000 European fascists and Nazis got out. Hitler got out of Berlin at, on the night of the 29th, early morning on the 30th. He was flown out of um, Berlin in a Ju-52 standard, uh, standard transport plane used by the um, Luftwaffe and the Wehrmacht at the time. Um, he was flown out by a man called Captain Peter... Um, oh, God. I'm sorry, I've forgotten Peter Baumgart. Is it uh, Fagelin? No, Peter Baumgart, Captain Peter Baumgart, who, interestingly enough, was a, um, originally a British South African citizen of German descent who'd gone back to huh. Germany um, in the 1930s to uh, help rebuild it. Yeah, lots of interesting facts here. Baumgart flew them out to, um, originally to a place called Magdeburg am Rhein, which is not the Magdeburg that was taken over by American troops two days earlier. It's the other side of the river. And then from there to um, the former Imperial Zeppelin base at Tonda in Denmark, which is where they swapped planes, flew on to Travemunda um, on the Baltic coast, and picked up a Ju-252, very long-range uh, pressurized aircraft, which flew them to just outside Barcelona, a place called Royce, a military airfield 80 kilometers south of Barcelona. From there, they were flown on in a Spanish aircraft to the island of Fuerteventura on the Canary Islands. Um, where there had been a base being prepared since 1941. Um, and if you actually go on Google Maps or Google Earth now, you can still see the airfield um, at the base of Fuerteventura, which the plane flew into. Uh, the area was called Villa Winter, or Villa Winter in Argentinian Spanish, but this is Spanish-Spanish. And from there, they were picked up by three U-boats, the last of the U-boat packs of World War II, Operation Sea Wolf, interestingly enough, um, which had been told which the Americans believed was carrying V-1 weapons that were going to strike the east coast of America with chemical, um, chemical agents. And you can look it all up. There's a huge panic. Uh, LaGuardia, the mayor at the time, panics and everything else. Well, this is as late as 1945, yes. right? As Germany's losing the war. Well, April, they've lost. Yeah, right. We're six days away from victory in Europe. Huh. Never have heard of that before. Yes, it's, um, it was done mainly to draw the American fleet up from southern waters in the Atlantic to cover the eastern seaboard so that there would be a safe route for the um, submarines to come across from Fuerteventura to the Argentine beaches, um, a journey that took 53 days submerged um, using snorkel technology at the time. So this was kind of like a, that was kind of like a distraction. Yes, very much um, so. Very much yeah. so. so they could possibly move they were probably moving their most valuable cargo, which was Hitler, into Argentina. Yes. I mean, they'd moved uh, a lot of other cargo into Argentina before. And, of course, with the help of the Swiss banks, 
they had moved what would be billions today. I mean, Adolf Hitler himself was worth eight billion U.S. dollars in 1945 as an individual. Um, details are coming out of that now. They've been published all over the British press last week. And, of course, his personal art collection has never been found either, along with 20% or 30% now of the um, ever-looted art and treasures that the Nazis took when they rampaged through Europe. But I think, Adam, one of the most important things about this whole story, the basically the, the allowance of these Nazis to escape is the involvement of um, what I have come to call America 2, as opposed to America 1. America 1, to me, is the uh, democratic America. You saw under people like Truman, Eisenhower, and JFK. And then America 2 is the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower and JFK both warned of um, considerably. Uh, Eisenhower in his departure speech, and JFK, who wanted to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces. It's with the help of the military-industrial complex and the CIA, or as it was, OSS at that stage, that these Nazis got out. And in return, America got things like rocket technology, the whole of the Werner von Braun program, which enabled NASA to put the Americans on on the moon. Um, Well, 10,000 scientists, 10,000 senior Nazis came to America post-World War II to help with the um, technology, technology boom that occurred then. Yeah, we are about, like I say, about 120 miles from Huntsville, Alabama. That's south of us. Yes. And that's where uh, Von Braun was and those guys. I mean, it always amazed me. You know, this is a man whose V1 and V2 weapons had killed over 5,000 British people, um, had killed a couple of thousand people in Rotterdam at the end of the war, had been responsible for the deaths of 30,000 slave workers um, right. in factories in Germany was a colonel in the SS, um, and then came to America. For me, it's a bit like putting the man who planned the 9-11 attacks in charge of air traffic control around. (laughs) Um, But I think that it was done because, very callously and very cynically, um, a certain part of the American, not the administration, but of the military-industrial complex, and we're talking people like the Ford Motor Company here, IBM, ITT, um, Standard Oil, Chase Manhattan Bank, all linked in to people like Alan Dulles and John J. McCloy, um, who were terribly central to the escape and the continued uh, freedom of these Nazis. Well, the Ford Motor Company, I mean, they owned plants in Germany, and I believe that uh, some, of the bomb, some of the American uh, bombers were told not to bomb those particular plants yes. that were making yes, the ball bearings for the war because Ford owned them. Ford made over a third of the vehicles that the German military used in World War II, and the profits all came back to Detroit. So we have the ridiculous situation that American boys are driving onto the beaches at Normandy in Ford motor vehicles, being met by German boys being driven onto the beaches to fight them in Ford motor vehicles. Well, Henry Ford loved Hitler. I mean, he... he, he <clears throat> he distributed the protocols of the elders of Zion with everybody that anybody that bought a Model T, I believe, got a copy of the elders of Zion. Yes, I mean, horrible man, completely foul creature. Um, he was yeah. awarded Hitler's high or the Nazi Party's highest civilian um, civilian honor, and of course Hitler quotes him at length in Mein Kampf, um, mm-hmm. which is the ramblings of a madman at, at the best. Um, ITT, for instance, owned 25% of the Focke-Wulf aircraft company in Germany. Um, Focke-Wulf fighters were shooting down American bombers over, over Europe during World War II. 
and not to mention IBM. Uh, uh, that, that's probably the most heinous of all. Yes, they built the counting machines that enabled the Holocaust to happen. Um, and American employees of IBM were at the death camps running these machines for the Nazis. And IBM made a huge profit out of it. Right. The tattoos that were on the concentra- concentration camp victims' arms. Yep. That was the uh, number that was used for the IBM counting machine. That's right. So well, I want to ask about... It's a very black period of, um, of our history. It, it's... Uh, and it's swept under the rug. Well, it's been brushed under the rug, a lot of it, um, and brushed quite firmly under the rug. But it's, it's things like we now are pretty sure that at the end of the war, between the period 45 and 48, over 100,000 European Nazis were allowed through the Vatican or helped through the Vatican, many of them carrying International Committee for the Red Cross passports and were then funneled onto Latin America. Um, many of them then made it back to Germany under their own names. Um, there was very little denazification done in Germany at the end of World War II. And, of course, back with them went um, the material to create the West German economic miracle, which I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard of, that at the end of World War II, West Germany miraculously came back to life as an economy. There's nothing miraculous about this at all. It was simply the money that the Nazis had funneled out um, using Swiss banking systems was coming back in, enabled them to build their capital base. Yeah, coming back into into West Germany, yep. which by then was seen as a bulwark, at least by the mid-50s, as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. Yep, those awful godless reds. Um, yep. And I think that a great deal of that view and the fear that was created about the Red Menace was actually done by the ex-Nazis who were running the um, intelligence system in West Germany at the end of at the end of the war, right up until... Well, I hate to say it, but the present day, although Germany today is not a Nazi nation, but um, their sons are running intelligence in Germany today. Right, and I think we're going to get to that when we talk about a little bit later about Hitler kind of being sidelined. But uh, about Martin Bormann, you know, Bormann is another one that is said that he also said to have died in Berlin in 1945. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, you know, what's the proof that he did not die? And that he actually was there in Argentina as well. Right, well, let's go through the, um, the key deaths here of Martin Bormann and a man called Heinrich Müller. Okay. Um, SS Müller. Müller and Bormann both escaped from the bunker um, the day after. Um, and Bormann is supposedly then killed by a tank blast or a, a, um, a bazooka blast. And he is buried under the rubble somewhere near a post office along with... Um, Hitler's doctor, Stumpfeger. That body is looked for uh, three or four times, and then, funnily enough, it's found in the same place they dug three or four times before in 1972. They check it against dental references and everything else, and they say, yep, Martin Bormann. But people don't believe them, because Martin Bormann's been seen a lot. (laughs) Martin Bormann's been seen a lot, not just in Germany up until 48. Um, There's a British intelligence officer who followed him down to the port of Bari in Italy in 47. Um, and watched him get on a on a train, on a, sorry, on a ship for Argentina. Anyway, to to shut all this up, the German government, the West German government, in 1992, um, carry out DNA testing on the remains of Martin Bormann, and they say that this is definitely Martin Bormann. We have got a match against an 83 year old relative of Bormann's, who they refuse to name. Now, in 92, Bormann had five surviving children, including Martin Bormann Jr., who was more than willing to give his DNA 
to the West German authorities to prove that this was his father who died in 1945. However, the West Germans, and now the German government, still refused to name this 83-year-old relative that none of Bormann's children had ever heard of. So it's right. a bit like me saying, um, Adam, you're my son. But I'm just going to say it. I've got DNA proof, but I haven't taken any DNA from you, and I'm not willing to name you. So what sort of proof is that? It's not. <laughs> you know, it's just nonsense. Complete scientific twaddle. Muller is the same. Muller's supposedly dead in 45 in Berlin, and his family have a grave for him, and on it says, this is one of the nastiest men in, in the organization, um, and his family put a name on it, Heinrich Muller, to our dear daddy, um, and um, that's it, Muller's dead. Except this is dug up in 1961, uh, somebody gets an order to exhume it, and there are three bodies in there, or three bits of bodies, and none of them can be Heinrich Muller, because very tall bloke. Now, I have Heinrich Müller in Cordoba in Argentina at this period running the, um, running the security network for what I start to call the Bormann organization, um, not the Nazi party, but the Bormann organization post-war. And I have him there because Hans Ulrich Rudel, Hitler's favorite fighter pilot, who goes to Argentina after the war to try and recreate a Fourth Reich um, and bring it back to Germany. Rudel names him in correspondence as one of his contacts there. So I have one Nazi talking about General Heinrich Müller um, so it's not even from an allied source. It's from a very Nazi source. So these are the deaths that people talk about. They say, no, you can't be. Hitler's dead. Sorry, no forensics. Miller's dead. Sorry, it's somebody else in his grave. Bormann's dead. Name the 83-year-old relative. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, that's all they would have to do, right? I mean, it's not... It was that difficult for them to do that. Well, they refused my requests. Yeah. I'm sure they did. <laughs> and I'm quite polite, generally. Uh, so this secret that Hitler was there in Argentina, and we'll kind of get into here in a little bit of how the kind of the details of him being there and what eventually happened to him there. But how were possibly the possibility of Western intelligence agencies involved in keeping Hitler's existence a secret down there? And also, I wanted to ask about uh, Reinhard Galen. Yes. Was there a role that his organization within the CIA that they may have played in, in helping to keep it secret? Completely. Um, I mean, it wasn't in anybody's interest at all for Hitler's escape to be um, to be public knowledge. You're also talking about Argentina up to 1983. It's a fascist dictatorship. They're killing 30,000 of their own people late on. I mean, people don't talk. Also, the German community was very tight and very closed. Um, and Perón was a big fan. I mean, the number of Nazis who were not extradited from Argentina is quite amazing. One particular SS general, general who we believe ran the area known as Adolf Hitler's Valley down near um, San Carlos de Bariloche, was um, Bibi van Albensleben. Uh, van Albensleben was a close um, cohort of um, Himmler. And when... They invaded Poland in 1939. Van Albensleben was responsible for the deaths of 16,000 Poles in the first four days. Intellectuals, officers, soldiers, teachers, Jews, of course. Um, Van Albensleben escaped at the end of the war, walked out of an Allied prisoner of war camp in Germany, made his way to Argentina along with his friends, and went on to become Juan Perón's Minister for Fisheries. Uh, <laughs> wow. That's just one example. Um, Galen and the organization in Germany knew where these people were, all of them. 
They knew where Adolf Eichmann was in the 1950s. They knew his address, what name he was using. They knew that he didn't go by his own name, but his wife and his three sons all went by the Eichmann name. I can't remember at the moment what Eichmann um, used as a, as a cover. But he lived in the same house. He just didn't call himself Eichmann. Um, but the German organization knew, the West Germans knew, what the West Germans knew, the CIA knew. They never told Mossad. Sure. And also at that stage, you have to remember that the CIA is using literally thousands of former Nazis around the world, um, especially in Latin America, to further the aims of what I still call America too, um, which seems to be under the control of people like Henry Kissinger a great deal. About Eichmann, um, what did he possibly know? Um, and, you know, he was caught by the by the Israelis. I think like 60, 1960 or 61. Yeah, I think They went down there and they caught him. Yeah. And did, do you think that he probably knew that Hitler was there? I think so, uh, yes. I mean, he did um, go to San Carlos de Bariloche a number of times. He also went up to Cordoba, La Falda, um, okay. which were both Nazi enclaves. Um, I'm pretty sure he <coughs> met Mengele on at least two occasions, possibly three. Um, and I think that he was sort of um, given to the Nazis. Uh, sorry, given to the Israelis. Um, I think they came very close to snatching Heinrich Müller as well, um, but didn't get him. Yeah, I think I think he knew. Um, he uh, parts of the transcripts of the trial in Tel Aviv are still not available, um, and that would be nice to see the parts that aren't, aren't available. So, um, but you have to, even though Eichmann is a, is a disgusting creature, he's a functionary. You know, he's a very small fry in compared to the others that got away. And the SS yeah. generals who were allowed to roam free, especially the, um, you know, the men who'd run Einsatzgruppen in the east, murdering civilians. And we have to remember that 20 million civilians or 20 million Russians were killed, Soviets were killed. But yeah, he was, a, he was a bureaucrat, really, was what he was. He made the trains run on time. He was particularly nasty, but um, he wasn't a nice man in any way. I'm glad he swung, but um, he was a, a small fry in comparison to many, many of the others that were around. So the Galen organization knew where he was. The Galen organization knew where everybody was because they were working mainly for Martin Bormann. Yeah. Um, and if you look at... Galen was in the United States Galen uh, came, for a time. Galen came yeah. to the United States in '45 after he surrendered and did a deal um, and offered America basically all of the Nazis' intelligence information on what was their new threat on the Eastern Front, the Soviets. He also gave... Um, America, the names of a number of Americans who were working for the Russians. Um, so he bought his position in the Galen organization, what then went on to become the BND, um, with the lives of American communists, uh, which everybody hated in those days anyway. So um, his organization, though, had direct links to the Bormann organization in Argentina um, and pretty much did what they were told. If you look at the Nazi Party credentials behind the early democratic West German government, you will find that they're pretty much all members of the Nazi Party um, and had had considerable contact with Martin Bormann during his time as um, Secretary of the Party. I think one thing to note here is that, you know, we talk about a lot about during the war and after the war, but before the war, there were contacts in the American business community. Um, you know, Prescott Bush. Yes. 
the uh, America- grandfather of the grandfather of George W. Yeah, America. He was America funded the Nazi Party to the tune of uh, well over a billion dollars. It was the equivalent of one year's GDP of the United States. Was pumped yep. into Germany in the 1930s, um, and they probably didn't realize what a bad bunch of boys these were going to turn out to be. But you know, you're looking at you're looking at everybody who had money to spend in the 1930s, late 30s was investing in Nazi Germany. This was an efficient, what appeared to me from the outside, extremely well-run economy. And it was turning into a powerhouse in Europe. And it was very important for people. Um, you had the Dulles brothers and their sister, who, um, Ellen Dulles, who went on to run the German desk at State after the war, um, who one of her brothers describes confirmed Hitlerite. Um, none of this appears in her in her biographies, which is interesting. Um, but the Dulles brothers were corporate lawyers representing people like Chase, Manhattan, and, and the old companies in Nazi Germany um, before the outbreak of war. And, of course, continued to up until 1941 when Germany declared war on America. We have to remember that Germany declared war on America after Pearl Harbor. Um, yes. Before that, I think America would have come in um, at some stage. Um, but it wasn't in at that stage. So up until that time, they were trading with the enemy because they weren't the enemy up until 1941. They were a perfectly reasonable-ish international power to do business with. But people like John and Alan Dulles um, were corporate lawyers. They had representation in Germany uh, before World War II. So did John J. McCloy. Um, McCloy actually sat in Hitler's box at the Olympics in Nazi Germany. Um, And Dulles and Bormann knew each other well, Um, not just on shaking hands basis. I mean, there are all these links. It, it's not just America. I mean, the head of the Bank of England during World War II, um, Sir Norman Montague, I think, um, and the head of the Reichsbank, Hitler's bank in Nazi Germany, um, Helmut Schacht, would meet regularly in Geneva, sorry, Basel, um, in Switzerland throughout the war. Um, they'd been close friends before the war. And in fact, we now know that they were actually homosexual lovers. I've got no problem with gay people. But just to show the linkage all over the place, you have the head of the Bank of England, which is basically Britain's imperial bank, and the head of the Nazi bank, um, meeting up in Geneva for um, for cuddles and cognac throughout the war. Right. And we were talking, I was talking with a group of friends uh, the other day about, we were talking about Dunkirk. And we were talking about how the 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 tanks just stopped short of just plowing straight into the British army and just forcing them straight into the sea and decimating them. Uh, and we we're talking about how Hitler purposely did that in order to make a deal with the British and say that they the British could have their empire and we'll have Europe. Yep. But but he did. There had to have been a real possibility that he thought that that could happen because there were people in Britain that were sympathizers. Oh, I think Lord Halifax was one of them. Completely. I mean, parts of our royal family were uh, were sympathizers and visited yeah. um, the king who abdicated, Edward VIII. Um, there's a very famous shot of him um, actually giving the Hitler salute, uh, visiting Hitler in Germany at the time um, with his wife. So, yes, you know... Fascism was, was very attractive to many people. I mean, there's, uh, I can't remember what the name of the American Nazi party was. Was it America First? The people who wanted to stay out of, um, out of World War II? Uh, but that, that, that was massive. We had black shirts in Britain. Um, Oswald Mosley. Uh, yeah. God, Mosley was a horrible creature. Um, yeah. But, I mean, you know, from right across Europe, 
and into North America, there were major fascist parties, major Jew-hating parties as well. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things is that at the fall of Berlin in 1945, the main defenders of Hitler's bunker area are not even German. There is the Charlemagne Division, the French SS Division, the Flemish SS Division, who fought with incredible um, viciousness on the Eastern Front, and the Nordland Division, which was made up of Danes, Norwegians, and Swedes who had flocked to the SS cause. Um, people forget that quite a lot of Europe quite liked what the Nazis were doing. Um, they brought order at a time when there had been none, um, and so a few Jews disappeared. 11 million of them disappeared, we now know. New reports from the Holocaust Studies Center. It's not six, it's 11. Um, people just killed for their race. Beyond me, completely beyond me. But a lot of people thought that this was acceptable. I don't think, well, maybe they thought it wasn't acceptable and they found out the extent of the Holocaust post-war. But during the war, anyway, they would never have known if the Nazis had won. It would have just disappeared into history. Right. Because it was it was secret. It was they tried to cover it up, but we got like the uh, somebody did save the uh, minutes of the Wannsee conference, so they were able to prove that you know that it was it was done. So many um, American, Canadian, and British troops liberating camps saw the extent to which the Holocaust had happened. Uh, yep. It's not something you could lie about. Uh, you know, just to make a point here, uh, Princeton University in 1939. They there was a poll that was taken and uh, said who is the most important person in the world today and the number one was Adolf Hitler. I think he was Time Magazine Man of the Year twice. I think I mean, number two was Albert Einstein. <laughs> I know who I'd have gone with. Um, but I mean, you know, there's probably a, a huge amount of detail um, I'm pouring out uh, to you and your listeners tonight, but. It, People can make their own mind up when they read the details in Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler. Um, you know, this is not uh, just not together 85 pages of nonsense. This has been very, very detailed work by um, a very good military historian and um, somebody who's been in news all their life. So it, I think originally when we, we published it through Sterling in America, um, Sterling put on the front the case presented. And that's what we do in the book. We present the case. It's up to people to decide themselves. But I will find it very difficult to believe anything my government tells me, or your government, come to that. Um, every, yeah, I don't believe a thing my government tells me. So uh, I don't believe a thing my local government tells me. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk about what happened to Hitler in Argentina and how it's not this whole... It, you, you, you get this, these, these theories of just, like the whole like they saved Hitler's brain thing, and you know he's in Ar he's in Antarctica with a fleet of, with of super weapon UFOs. Yeah, I never. And, I never you know, this is this is not what happened. Uh, it's actually and, it's actually quite boring, um, right? In some ways, it must be very boring for him. Luckily, uh, I don't think he's that well when he arrives in Argentina. I think he's uh, probably more badly wounded in the July bomb plot made famous by Tom Cruise in Valkyrie um, yeah. than was made out to be. And I think that's also why we see quite a few of um, the double appearing in Berlin at the, end of, at the end of 1945. So I don't think he's that well. I think he takes a while to recover. Um, Ava Brown is pregnant when they arrive. She's uh, been early pregnant in the bunker. 
gives birth to a daughter at the end of 1945. And the daughter that they had in Germany comes out to join them sometime 45, 46. That's another thing that's not in the history books at all, that they had any children. No, it isn't. Um, yeah. Because I don't know whether you have the same thing, but there's an old British Army marching story, a song which goes on about Hitler has only got one ball, excuse me, to your um, listeners. Yeah, that, I've heard the rumor. Uh, yeah. The other is yeah. in the Albert Hall. Um, <laughs> Goering. No, Himmler has something similar, and poor old Goering has no balls at all. Anyway. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, there actually seems to have sired a number of children. Two with Ava Brown, um, another one with a um, gold medal winning javelin thrower uh, from the German team, Tilly Fleischer in um, Munich in 37, um, whose daughter grows up and writes a book called I Was Adolf Hitler's Daughter, which has been airbrushed from history too. And it's also possible, and there were lots of rumors about it, that one of Magda Goebbels' children was Hitler's. Um, one of the sons who wasn't in the bunker with them at the end, he was fighting. So I, I, I don't think that um, the idea that Hitler was... that This is the problem with Hitler. I don't want to make him out to seem like a normal man, but that's what he is. He's just an extremely evil normal man. Right. In the same way that, you know, Saddam Hussein was, or Mao Zedong, or uh, Stalin. Um, these were just people. They're just really, really evil people. Um, but he seemed to have a family life. If you look at the pictures of Becker's garden, you will see him with his, um, with his friends bouncing children on his knee. Um, somewhere in America, there's a whole box of these things, which uh, an AP reporter was there when they were found. And there were dozens upon dozens of pictures of Ava Brown, uh, which Ava Brown had taken herself, which said, Ushi with Daddy, Ushi with Daddy at Becker's garden, Ushi with Daddy mm. at Christmas time. Um, and they were all of Adolf Hitler with his daughter. So she was about six when, um, when it all collapsed. And they, to my knowledge, they're still alive and living in Argentina, but they may not be in Argentina. They're very wealthy women. They could be anywhere in the world. Huh. Anyway, back to Hitler. Um, so he recovers, and, of course, Argentina has been flooded with Nazis. He has the perrons um, covering his back, so he's in exile in a very remote rural part of Argentina, but with his friends. Which the Perones were being bribed, essentially. Um, they were being paid. Yeah. <laughs> Considerable yeah. amounts of money. Yeah. Um, but they were quite happy to have quite a lot of these Germans there because they saw them as a massive influx of scientists and managers and businessmen and soldiers who could help their new regime. And a lot of them did. Um, a lot of them went on to work for the Peron government. But, so Hitler lives there, and it, there's a house built for him. At the, um, it's finished in '46, and they go and live there in Adolf Hitler's Valley. Um, and the house is called Inalco. I've been there twice. Wow. wow! And he seems to live there until Martin Bormann arrives, and Bormann realizes in '48 that you can never put the Nazi brand back to where it was. Nobody's ever going to march behind the swastika in their shiny Hugo Boss boots and suits. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can laugh, guys. There's a Hugo Boss in every street corner. He designed the SS uniforms. Wow. Um, so Borman realizes that he doesn't need flags and banners and speeches because he controls the economy. The economy. He controls the banks. He controls the businesses. The party is still very much in power but it's not in power up front. It's in power in the back. 
Um, I think it's probably a lesson he learned from what I called earlier America too. Um, and when we do the uh, follow-up to Grey Wolf, if we can ever find a publisher out there, um, we will detail exactly how that was constructed and how people like Ellen Dulles at State um, helped that a great deal. He sidelines Hitler. Um, I don't think he can bring himself to have him killed, um, but Hitler becomes more depressed, more ill. Um, he has a cardiac condition, um, a pulmonary uh, problem. Um, Ava Brown seems to leave him, according to the testimony of one of her daughters, in the 1950s and takes the kids off to live in the Quen at the foothills of the Andean Mountains. Andean Mountains. So Hitler is left pretty much to die. Well, not alone. His um, personal doctor, Dr. Otto Lehmann, is with him all the time. And um, a former Graf Bay crewman and seems to act as his valet, um, Pablo Glocknik, is with him as well. And he dies in 1962 on the 3rd of February. Uh, 6th of February at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, attended by Dr. Lehman, um, and then disappears, or the body disappears. I think it's probably burnt and scattered because Martin Borman doesn't want it known, and uh, America too doesn't want it known, and nobody else wants it known either. It's the story that needs to be kept covered. And it seems like it probably at this point that nobody really nobody really cares about him much anymore. That the Borman organization has moved on. Yes, very much so. And nobody's really sees him as important and he just he just gets sidelined and he dies quietly. Now or now this doctor, uh, you know, you guys had I saw your movie, the you allowed me to see it, and the film was I mean, I thought it was—I thought it was very excellent, uh, very well made. Thank you. Um, uh, this testimony of this doctor—is this written? It was the most compelling to me. Is this written down? Because that, that, somewhere that came to us from um, a man called Captain Monasterio, who had met okay. Pablo Glocknik in the 1960s, and who had been handed um, the testimony of Dr. Lehman, um, Lehman's diary, oh. effectively. Um, and fortunately, when I met Captain Monasterio, um, Manuel was in his 80s and had moved house half a dozen times and had lost the testimony. He had written the book, Hitler Died in Argentina, Hitler Murió on Argentina, in 1970-something, um, but changed various bits of it because he'd been warned off by friends in the Argentine Navy that he couldn't talk about the submarines. Um, and yeah. the FBI went and interviewed him about it, um, by which stage Pablo Glocknik, the only surviving part of the team that was around Hitler at his death, uh, was also dead. Um, so it's testimony that Captain Monasterio swore to me is true. Captain Monasterio had been a, um, a politician and a, a good businessman and had run the, um, run the refrigerated fleet in Argentina, um, which used to take Argentine beef up to Europe and um, up to the States as well. So a man of some substance, and I had no reason I met with him on numerous occasions, his memory was very good, the book was very solid, um, and I had no reason to believe that he was lying to me. Uh, two different theories that I wanted to ask you about was, um, there is a, a author here in the United States named Jim Mars. Yes, sir. And uh, he, he wrote a book uh, called um, Rise of the Fourth Reich. Yes. And in that book, he, he has a similar... Um, Similar story, uh, I think but it does not involve Hitler, but 
R. Borman, but Otto Scorzini as the one who moves out the uh, who, who moves out all the gold. And, yeah, and I, I, I think Scorzini. I'm afraid because I like Jim's work and I'm, I'm very impressed by his, his yeah. material. Um, we can't all be right, and I'm sure I'm not right on loads of things, Adam. To be perfectly honest, we try to be as right as we can be. Um, sure. Scorzini was definitely involved in the Borman organization. Um, quite heavily involved in the Borman organization. He was reputedly Eva Peron's lover at one stage. He was in Argentina. Um, he'd managed to walk through an American prisoner of war camp, as so many of them seem to have done. Not just American, British and Canadian as well. Um, but Scorzeni was much more of a sort of um, security operative. I don't see him as being important. I mean, he wouldn't have known about international banking deals or how to run economies. He did get very involved with the Perons and their attempt to get even more of the Nazi loot um, than they did than they did do. Um, but I don't see Skorzeny as being a, a central figure. There are a lot more interesting figures who don't have his swashbuckling, um, high-profile um, romance. Um, but he was there. He was definitely there and involved. And there's another theory as well of a, an author named Peter Lavenda who wrote a book about... Um, yeah, only, Hitler I, in I, Indonesia. Adam, can I only say this once? Adolf Hitler did not go to Indonesia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're familiar with I'm that, very then. very familiar okay. with Mr. Lavendra's work. Um, and also, of course, there's... Uh, oh, Corso? What's, what's his name? Um, oh, terrible. He's just written a book. Jerome Corso. Jerome, Jerome Corso, yeah. Um, yeah. Who I've um, communicated with, and he quotes Grey Wolf quite extensively in his book. Um, without permission, um, uh, <laughs> which is fine. Hey, you know this is history. This isn't like somebody nicking um, an idea for a TV series or a you know a fictional plot. Um, anybody, if they'd actually bothered to put the time and effort into researching this story, um, which historians do not seem mainstream historians do not seem to want to do, um, yeah. would have found what we had found. They just had to look. Well, they haven't bothered, and that bothers me. Good question to ask is what what kind of uh, flack have you guys gotten off of this? What kind of criticism have you guys gotten? Uh, well, I'm a nutter. Um, do you use that expression in Tennessee? Um, <laughs> uh, conspiracy theorist. Um, I've been called by one man called Guy Walters, who purports to be a historian but is still doing his degree. I don't purport to be a historian. I am a journalist. Um, we were told we were 4,000% wrong. Well, I could have been quite happy with 100% wrong if he didn't that. Um, it was a great comment on the front page of one of our national newspapers here, or the middle pages of one of our national newspapers here, that we are nutters and 4,000% wrong. Um, my publisher's got a request from him three days later for a copy of the book, um, which he had to bother to read before that happened. Uh, right. I mean, so, you know, again, we get a lot of flack by people who simply won't believe that Adolf Hitler didn't die in the bunker, um, despite the fact there's no forensic evidence. And um, what more importantly is that two of our witnesses in Argentina both have death threats made against them. Um, and it was that stage that I started to take this project even more seriously, because why would you try and threaten, well, the lady was in her 70s and Captain Monasterio was in his mid-80s at the time. Um, Monasterio got a phone call saying if you don't drop this Hitler in Argentina story we will burn your house down and kill your children um, the lady got a phone call after she had said that she remembered Hitler having pictures taken with her friends 
in the 1950s and 60s in Cordoba province in Argentina that she'd ask around. She also knew that he'd signed copies of Mein Kampf for various people. Um, she asked around and she got a phone call saying, um, stop talking to these people. The Gestapo are still active and it is very dangerous for her. Now, at that stage, we took the her to mean Ava Brown because we'd had various rumors, um, which we weren't able to um, prove, that Ava Brown was still alive in the early 2000s. But Mrs. Muller um, never spoke to us again. She was scared witless. And I believe there was a bank manager that um, had, in, in your film, that the, this bank manager had an encounter with uh, Hitler's daughter. Uh, no, that wasn't a bank manager. That was a, that was a lawyer. She's gone on to yeah, be um, yes. one of the most important human rights lawyers in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. And she wow. met Hitler's daughter in the 1970s, um, who had come to her for help because her husband, who was an ex-Nazi, well, I don't think you can be an ex-Nazi, was a Nazi, um, was beating her up, and she was under false papers in Argentina. Um, and so was her husband. And after a couple of meetings, and they met a number of times, she told her she was Hitler's daughter, um, the daughter of Hitler and Eva Brown, and went into quite considerable detail um, about her life and how they... <coughs> now, I have no reason this uh, lawyer, obviously, because of client confidentiality, won't give me any contact details. But I have no reason to believe somebody uh, with a reputation as um, important as this, lady's, um, as this lady's is would lie to me or, uh, or joke with me about this. Um, one of the things for me that um, led to a lot of validity to, your, to the book and to the movie was actually myself having been to South America. I've been to Brazil and been specifically into the interior of Brazil, around Brasilia, and there's, there's a lot of open space in, in South America. That's huge. South America is absolutely huge. You know, Brazil is the largest country there. Patagonia, and there are one plenty of places to hide. Four times the size of Texas. Patagonia yeah, is? Four times the size of Texas. Yeah. And that's only one part of Argentina. Yeah, that's, that's you know, a fifth or something. Yeah, and it's and it's remote, and I mean, and in the Andes, just the mountains in the in and of themselves, there's plenty of places to hide there. Yep, and they've hidden a lot of people there um, for many years. Uh, Mengele was hidden. Um, Mengele actually <laughs> lived in San Carlos de Bariloche. He was the doctor at one of the big hotels just outside at a place called Zhao Zhao. Um, he failed his driving test in Bariloche um, three times. <laughs> under his own name um, and uh, you know you can still find the records in, in the local council area um, there's another climbing club called the Andean Climbing Club in Bariloche uh, but to be a member post-war you'd have to be a member of the National Socialist Party the Nazi Party um, although Peron was an on, honorary member <laughs> and he's right. skiing down there a lot with his German friends right all his Nazi buddies yeah. uh, Bobby, was there any questions that you wanted to ask before I move on? Uh, not particularly. I think I'm you're just, just all kind I'm of taking gonna, it in. Well, yeah. I'm just soaking it all up, I uh, guess. Uh, well, I want to ask, um, and this is the the lady that had the phone call, and she was told that the, the Gestapo still exists. Yeah. So the question is, Borman's organization, does it still exist? Yes. And also, is could it be a model of 
what, you know, in the conspiracy theory world of the New World Order? Um, I think it's an example of the Old World Order as much as the yeah. New World Order. What we're talking about is a financial organization. They may now represent themselves as a bank or a large um, Wall Street and they're probably listed all over the place in Paris, Germany, Britain, and on Wall Street as well. Um, they have shares and shareholdings in most of the many important companies in the world. Um, that would include companies like Mannesmann, Siemens, um, the German major companies, but also I would have thought in people like IBM, ICI, BP, Shell, and they're just shares. A bunch of people who really like making money, and they don't give a damn how they do it. Um, Halliburton, these are names that are probably uh, recognizable to you after the Iraq War. Uh, right. You know, how much money did Dick Cheney and his friends make out of the suffering, um, not just of American troops, um, but, you know, all those poor Iraqi civilians and British troops as well. Um, people, and they meet up occasionally when, when their spheres of influence overlap, these powerful beings, these powerful people. And they say, well, you know, we could make some money here. But I don't think they're interested massively in a new world order. They're quite happy with the way the world is at the moment. Because this 1% own and control the planet. Why right. would you want to change that? Yeah, exactly. Why would you want, you know, it's on the street. It's, it's difficult. It's much easier to let people watch Fox News or, um, you know, do something else. Um, but it is much easier for people to do that and keep them confused than it is to militarize a situation, a domestic situation. Um, and why bother? They can sell them cars and they can make them buy their chemical riddled vegetables and their, um, their, you know, their chemical margarines and everything else they produce. Um, and that's what they're there for. You know, most of us are here simply as consumers. I wanted to get you your, uh, you know, you've, you've been pretty much around the world and um, you've been in Iraq. And I, I want to get your opinion, you know, of, of what's going on there now. <clears throat> well, we screwed up, didn't we? Basically. Um, we invaded under false pretenses in the hope that we could nick their oil again, uh, which the British and the French had tried to do from the 1920s on, and then America in its post, well, in its imperial role now in the world. Um, many, many of your troops got killed. Many, many Iraqi civilians got killed. And now there is no tough guy like Saddam Hussein, who used to be our ally, to stop these people setting up a caliphate, um, which will include the destruction of Syria, the destruction of Iraq, all of which were lines drawn by French and British imperialists in the 1920s. These countries yeah. never really existed. Um, and now it's going back to the pre-imperial period, pre-Ottoman, pre-British and pre-French empires. Um, I don't know how much we have to worry about them. Um, people constantly say, oh, God, they're going to put Sharia law in and everything else. Well, Saudi Arabia is run under Sharia law, and it is one of the greatest allies that Britain and the American governments have in the Middle East. Women aren't even allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. You have your hand cut off if you um, steal. You get stoned to death if you're female and you commit adultery. Not if you just commit adultery, but if people say you've committed adultery. Um, I would rather see Saddam Hussein in power than what is happening now. Oh, that's a strong statement. Well, when I was in Baghdad yeah. the first time, 
after Gulf War One, and we hadn't gone up and destroyed um, the, Amer- the Iraqi army or anything else. Baghdad was a much happier place, even though it was, you know, a police state and all the rest of it. Um, when I went in um, after Gulf War Two and went into the Green Zone, even the hot water didn't work in the hotel. I mean, you know, it was being run by the American military and nothing worked. Wow. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a mess there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an absolute it's an it's absolute. It's mess. a little off, it's a little off topic. I know I've really come on to talk about Grey Wolf, but um, yeah, I haven't yeah. seen it. I mean, it, we we just caused much more damage than we um, than we made good of anything. Uh, Your personal experience. Yeah, and the Iraqi people won't benefit from all that money you plunged into their infrastructure. Um, the people who benefit are the companies you paid to put it in. Um, and Afghanistan is exactly the same. Give it two years. It'll be a mess once more. What do you foresee uh, in the future as far as, like, in your opinion? Um, in what way, Bobby? Well, I mean, as far as uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, where they're headed. Um, back to the Middle Ages for a while. Yeah. I don't think, <laughs> yeah, I think that that will be... Um, I, 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 we always used to laugh about this as a group of journalists in Iraq, um, especially after Gulf War Two. It would have been cheaper for you guys to get everybody satellite television and ten thousand dollars and said, "Go have fun." Yeah, <laughs> and it would have worked. They'd have been watching mucky channels and you know MTV and everything else within days. Yeah, you could have Coca Cola the whole nation instead of instead of blowing it back into the Middle Ages. Right. So yeah. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should have, we should have you back on at some point just to kind of talk about your experiences because that's something that that really interests me is geopolitics and you know history and what has happened in you know did you have a lot of experience in going to um, Bosnia and to Iraq and, I, and what has I've, happened there? I've pretty much given up on all that, Adam. Now, um, yeah. I mean, when I was a, a field journalist and a duty editor running, you know. 40-something foreign bureaus for Reuters when I wasn't in the field. Um, I was fascinated by the whole thing. I got very cynical and very depressed about what happens in the world. Oh, I can imagine. Um, you know, I covered my first famine in Africa in 1983. Whew. And there have been dozens since, no matter what we do. You know, the whole of South Sudan is a mess now again. Um, yeah. I was in Mogadishu in Somalia briefly before the Americans went in when the um, Pakistani UN troops were there. And you, you, I just look at the world and I think, bloody hell. Sorry, excuse my language on it. Um, but I look at the world and I just go, I don't want to be part of this anymore. Um, so what I'm doing now is I'm writing World War II fiction novels where I don't chase Nazis, I get to kill them in all manner. <laughs> uh, so you can have a look out for, for, the, um, for the Bill Leonard series, which two novels are being published this year. Um, that's how I enjoy myself nowadays is writing writing for fun, as well as carrying on with this research, which I'm afraid has become a bit of a, oh, a bit of a crusade in some ways. Um, it hasn't done me a great deal of good financially, but um, it, it's a story that needs to be told, and that's my problem. Um, I'm sure a psychiatrist would tell me it's my problem, is that I think the truth needs to be known. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Another quick question. Um, do you, uh, well, here, how should I say this? Um, do they know where, have they found any of the artifacts that were exported from Germany to Argentina or 
um, been able to to pinpoint uh, anything like that? And then, um, do you feel like U.S. government knows what's going on there, or um, do you think it's all, you know, pretty much washed away at this point? Well, in terms of the artworks and the artifacts that have that disappeared at the end of the war. Um, I think a, a lot of the problem is that the people who own them are dead, so they don't go looking for them. Um, yeah. Many of the families of the people who own them are dead. Um, the Germans have been very, very uh, limited. They, Nazi Germany was incredibly thorough. When they sent somebody to the gas chambers or when they um, took the property of rich uh, Jewish people, um, they kept a list of everything. Um, and you'd be amazed at how many of these people had life insurance policies. And if those life insurance policies alone had to pay up, people like Swiss Reinsurance and some of the biggest um, insurance companies in the world would collapse overnight. So it's, yeah. it's not just, you know, the missing art. Um, it's all the shares that people held that were then passed to Nazi families and Nazi party officials um, who managed to get those share certificates out um, or the bearer bonds out or whatever. Um, but most of those details are available in about well, four or five railway-type trucks in Germany with three people, I think, um, actually handle the administration. So it can take up to five years to reply to a letter um, saying, do you have any information about the Rembrandt that my grandfather owned? Hmm. Hmm. Where, I mean, you and your personal... What's your personal thoughts on where they are? In private collections, a lot of them. Um, yeah. Some of them will still be hidden in mine shafts and various other things in Germany and will be the source for treasure seekers for the next 150 years, probably longer. Um, but most of them I would have thought in private collections, hanging on the walls of homes in, um, in Germany and in Argentina. Um, and quite a few of them in American homes as well um, and British homes because, you know, we probably found a load of loot at the end of World War II, our boys on the, on the road. Uh, which yeah. weren't going to tell anybody we'd found. Sure. So, you know, you turn up at Merker's Mine or somewhere like Merker's Mine, you know, which is the famous stash, um, and you're a, a squaddy or a sergeant. You just fought your way up from the D-Day beaches, and you see an interesting piece there. You can put it in your backpack. Absolutely. Yeah. I would. I earned this. <laughs> this is mine now. <laughs> Well, it's kind of like, you know, Saddam and the golden toilets and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> the stuff that got looted in Baghdad. Yeah, it's just beyond belief. Um, another question: As far as uh, in Argentina, um, is there is there a whole lot of like documented? I mean, how many how much documented how many documented things are there? I mean, I, I'm sorry, I haven't read your book. I'm sure a lot of it's probably in there. But as far as a lot of the uh, eyewitnesses, a lot of the documentation was destroyed in the 1960s in a very handy fire um, in Buenos Aires. Also, military governments aren't as keen on keeping documentation as others. There's some fascinating material from the Coast Guard and from the Argentine Navy about the arrival of submarines and people um, in 1945, and that's okay. pretty much detailed in the book. <clears throat> but that comes, again, from really good Argentine researchers who've written books which haven't been translated into English um, about the Nazis in Latin America post-war. Um, all of which, you know, we took a fact from somebody, we named them, and we put it in the book. We're proper researchers. Um, there's there's a fair amount of interesting stuff. There's a book by um, a man called, um, oh, God, what's his name? Santander, 
which details all the um, payment stubs for um, Juan and Eva Perón from the app there and has copies of very interesting documentation taken from the German embassy and also then taken from Nazis were interrogated in Germany at the end of the war who had been in Argentina prior. So there's a lot of information out there. Um, there's also a huge amount of false information out there. You mentioned briefly the um, Antarctic base. There isn't one. Um, yeah. Base on the moon. There isn't one. Right. Um, or the 300,000 <laughs> um, blonde Aryan women who disappeared from Germany at the end of the war to go to the Antarctic base. Well, they'd have frozen their um, off by now. Um, so they didn't go. That didn't happen. And neither did the fleets of Type 21 electric U-boats um, go to Argentina at the end of World War II. The Type 21 was pretty rubbish um, and had a nasty tendency to break in half. Um, they'd have developed it, given time, and it would have been a real war winner. But 1945, no, nah, didn't happen. Uh, Do we know anything about as to where Hitler lived and the family in Argentina? Like, it was in the jungle? No, like, no jungles in Argentina. It's the problem. There are no jungles in Argentina. It looks like Wyoming. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty flat land, and it's, yeah. Um, yeah. Parts of it look just like Texas. Right. Um, so there's no jungle down there. It, it's Europe. It's very European. And it's all detailed in Grey Wolf. Um, the, the first house they went to, where they lived for a year, and we have um, eyewitness testimony from um, a woman who waited on them there, who said that they left after a year, and they were all told that they died in a car crash outside the property. Um, so they were dead again. So that was another dead-end follow-up. Um, and then the house that was built for him, specifically by a very famous architect in Argentina called Alejandro Bustillo, um, where they seemed to live until the early 50s. And then the house that Hitler died in, La Clara, which I haven't been able to find the address of, but I'm pretty sure I know the area it's in. Um, and then you have the Hotel um, Vienna um, up on the lake at Machiquita, and the Hotel Eden, um, and the Eichmann family. It, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty thorough. Hmm. Interesting. Do we know how he died? Yeah, so, it looks like a stroke followed by a heart attack. Hmm. So in, now, is there documentation in Argentina of someone dying of that no, I, under the alias? You wouldn't get it anyway. Um, he wasn't of an alias, and they, they, oh. they lived in communities that were that were all completely self-sufficient, you know, self-standing. Um, if you have a look at, um, I'm trying to think of the one <coughs> they had in Chile, which is. Uh, community Dignidad, community yeah, Colonia Dignidad. You look at what happened there without um, the Chilean authorities knowing what was going on, and the whole area around Bariloche was German. I mean, people would have been invited possibly to the funeral, but you wouldn't have had to register the deaths with the Argentine authorities. Right. Get away with anything. What about Eva? Like you were saying that somebody. uh... I think she got tired of being. She was pretty. Pretty much a party girl, Eva Brown. Um, loved to dance, very gymnastic, athletic. Um, and I think she got very bored with her lost life in the Andes um, and then left him. You know, he was never going to be the powerful man that uh, he had been before. Um, it was no life for the kids. And she mm-hmm. was incredibly wealthy. The Bormann organization would look after her. All she had to do was shut up. Right. And she she could live quite happily. There's a big German community in um, in Buenos Aires. Interesting enough, there's a big Jewish community there as well, um, which shows how 
non-anti-Semitic these people were after the war. Uh, Peron yeah. had quite a few Jewish cabinet members. Um, but Ava and the children seem to have lived yeah, upper middle class life, bourgeois, could do whatever they wanted to do. Obviously could travel internationally, I don't know, but you know, I'd have thought the kids might have been educated in America or Britain or Germany. Um, they're wealthy people, they're very wealthy people. Right. But she is, Do you know anything yeah. more about the children besides the uh, interview with the uh, attorney? You get you get rumors and you get mentions of them by um, eyewitnesses um, throughout the early part of their life. But I don't see it as my job to go chasing the children of evil dictators. Um, sure. <laughs> you know, that, that just strikes me as a, a bridge too far, really. Um, if they want to come up and open up to me and um, give me some details, that'd be fine. But I'm not hunting anybody. Sure. Well, uh, George, we uh, want to thank you for coming on, and I want to ask you, uh, where can you get uh, people get Grey Wolf, and uh, what do you, uh, what is it that you're going to be working on next? Um, Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler, is available on Amazon. Um, it's available on Barnes & Noble in the States. Uh, should be available at all good bookshops, he says, hopefully. Um, but it's definitely available at Barnes & Noble and on Amazon. Um, and on various other online online sellers as well. Um, in a couple of months, Grey Wolf, the film, or the drama documentary, to be more specific about it, uh, is being released in America. Um, that's the US and Canada. And um, hopefully people will get a chance to have a look at it and see what they think. Um, they can always let me know via greywolfmedia.com. Um, I'm happy to engage, usually, with most people. Um, what am I working on now? Well, Simon and I both continue to work on our research for... The Spider's Web, which is the follow-up book we're hoping to write. Uh, but currently I'm working on fiction. Um, so currently I'm killing Nazis on paper. Taking a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, strangely, I'm enjoying it. Um, my, father was, my father was a combat soldier during World War II, North Africa, desert rat, up through Italy. And um, so it's partially based on his experiences and partially not. Oh, excellent. Sure. Cool. Uh, well, we're going to be... We'll uh, take a break here, and uh, we'll be right back on Consumer Normal. Jared, stay on the line for us. All right, Consumer Normal. It's the first time we're doing something here a little different. Uh, we're doing a have one of our sponsors here. We got uh, Mr. Joe, who's been on our show a few times before. He was on our 50th uh, show uh, party show. And uh, he's a sponsor of the company called Biggie Frame. And uh, he, he's here to talk about uh, some of the things that he is doing in uh, paranormal research and uh, has a, some things that he wants to talk about and get people interested in. So, Joe, welcome to Conspiranormal yet again. Yeah, nice to be here, Adam. I want everybody to, um, to check the link below. Adam's going to put out a link. Uh, we're trying to promote our technology called HIT, Hidden Intelligence Tracking. You'll be able to analyze your video in a new way. It, it'll show motion of light. It'll show the, the amplified light that's in the room, and it doesn't distort any other part of the video. Once, once that is d done, we'll send you back that video. You'll, you'll pretty much send us a regular video, and we'll send you back the amplified result, and you'll be able to um, step through it one frame at a time and see if you caught anything interesting and it doesn't necessarily have to be paranormal if you were robbed or if you want to even find out how a magic trick was done watch a magic show 
and then look at the video. This stuff will, will notice um, very minute movements and color changes. So it, it's it's really it's a strong program. We recommend you guys try it out. It's it's free for your first two downloads, and we'll charge. Um, a small fee after that because we actually have humans doing the processing. They have to um, download your video and put it through the process then send it back to you. Pretty can, easy to do. Can you talk about the technology behind it? Yeah, it was originally um, developed for the medical industry. It's uh, MIT had a hand in developing it and they have some links on their, their website and their school on on some of their work. Um, we've we've made it better. We've actually um, tuned it in for um, looking for um, more amplified results through light. So I think you guys will be interested in that. Um, it, the technology is simple. It's it's pretty much just a math problem that they developed that looks at the light and doesn't destroy the um, rest of the scenery. And uh, wh what is it that uh, you're primarily looking for when you're, when you're looking at these pictures? Um, we're looking for proof that consciousness exists. You know, like, like people without bodies, we, um, we're getting pictures of um, ladies, and um, we're getting pictures of angels, we think. We're definitely getting pictures of strange-looking animals or aliens. And that evidence is posted on, on the link below. You can get to it and look at it. And um, this is all legitimate. We want you guys to send us your videos and see what you get in them too. And um, maybe this might be a new awakening for uh, the paranormal world and it'll maybe help out the rest of the world. I don't know how it'll help people out knowing that there's ghosts in their house all the time, but... Um, at least it's validation that this is not um, this is not something like superstition. You know, we're actually getting real proof on camera. And Joe, how do you know? Uh, just to kind of play devil's advocate here, how do you know like what you're seeing isn't like pareidolia or just like your your mind making up images? Some of it is, of course, because you can go outside right now and look at the grass and see pictures in it but um, what's interesting about the video is you can just take a video of a blank white wall then analyze the light that's coming back and you'll see stuff take shape and leave the the image so I don't think it's it's your mind matrixing anything because it'll it'll take shape then leave it it's like looking at a different world. This is like a microscope for video. So, like people um, refer to microscope looking at bacteria, like you can't see it with your normal eyes until you turn the microscope on it. Then you start seeing little things move around. So, to me, I don't think we're making microscopes up e either. And this, this technology is just using the data that's already present in your video. It's not really making anything up. Now, if your mind's making it up, um, it's possible, I think, but some of it is really hard to explain, then um, that's why we need the public to send us videos. You'll be able to actually 
send us a video of something that you did and we don't know what you asked for you know maybe you asked for your grandma to show up now if she shows up um, I don't think it's your mind making it up um, maybe she really did show up on camera for you so it's worth a try I say to have everybody experiment and to figure it out more I don't really know what to say. I mean, it pretty much sums it up for me. I understand. Well, okay. Well, what's kind of what's the best uh, what's the best evidence that you've gotten? Um, some of the best stuff I've gotten, I really I deleted it because my hard drive was full, and uh, I'm I decided to start keeping track of this stuff because I didn't believe it myself. But um, the latest best evidence is posted on the internet right now. You can see it on some of the still shots we have. I think the best is yet to come. And this is when this new technology called 4K comes into effect. We're going to get four times the resolution on these cameras that we take video of. And the 4K TVs are coming in. So whatever we're seeing in the next year is going to be... Um, I think mind-blowing it's going to be four times better resolution and and if it's nothing we'll actually see more um, I, I guess I guess we'll prove it right or wrong with this technology so I think the best is yet to come well how much how much is it to uh, for people they want to get any more information and also how much is it to, how much does it cost to get these, these big process um, it doesn't cost anything right now. We're doing it for free. There's a um, there's an iPhone app coming out pretty soon called Hit Hidden Intelligence Tracking for the iPhone. You just take a video with your iPhone and send it to us, and we'll process it and um, Google Drive it back to you. Um, eventually, we'll have to start charging if we get too busy. That's our problem: is we might not have enough people to to help out. But right now, it's free to just to get interest. So send us your video whenever you can get a chance and they're just 20 seconds of video that's all we need well Joe I want to thank you for coming in and uh, being, a, being a part today and uh, everybody uh, we'll have on our show notes we'll have a link to um, Joe's technology for y'all to check it out and uh, we'll thank everybody for listening and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal Okay, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Um, of course, you know who this is. It's Adam, and then, of course, Bobby was sitting in. Uh, it's been a few hours since we actually did the interview. So, uh, you know, Bobby was sitting there just mostly, I think, just kind of soaking it in and, and listening to what uh, Gerard had to say. Um, just uh, as someone that's not heard the things that we talked about, like the kind of the American business involvement with the Third Reich before the war, like, you know, what's kind of like your impressions, Bobby, of what, what we just heard from Jared? <coughs> well, it's surprising, but it's not surprising in the sense that it's something that, you know, the government has kept from us in a sense, you know. Yeah. Um, just like a lot of other things, you know, you got to be blinded, you know. But uh thought overall it was really interesting to hear some of those things and, um, you know, it's just like I said. I'd heard uh, Jared talk on uh, uh, Darkness Radio, and was kind of immediately intrigued by just how um, how much it just made sense. Everything that he had that that he had said. Uh, I was thinking to myself, um, 
about what he's talking about, kind of like the difference between a historian and a journalist, and how historians are kind of just generally, they're kind of set in their ways on this particular subject, that you know, that they say, well, Hitler died in the bunker, and that's it. Right. And you know, here he is as an independent journalist going in and just collecting data and uh, proving proving otherwise. So I wonder if there's some, you know, I, like historians look down, and this is <coughs> historians looking down their nose on, on journalists or, or maybe even vice versa. So interesting little dichotomy there, I think, got through the show. Um, but anyway, I want to thank him for coming on. I know that uh, it was an interesting show since we had to do it pretty early. Uh, we recorded it to 10 o'clock this morning, which we're recording on June the 30th. And um, that's pretty early for us. As we, since for we those of you, that's 7 o'clock on the West Coast. Yeah, well, it was, yeah. it was 5 o'clock, yeah. Well, no, it would be on the West Coast for, for us, it would be 8, 2 hours. I mean, like, yeah. farther, farther West. Yeah, for him, it was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Like, between Hawaii <laughs> and we, the ocean. Yeah, so we spoke... We spoke a little bit till then, but Bobby, uh, thank you for uh, you know coming on and uh, no, no, in. glad to be here again. You yeah, know. Luke glad wasn't here. You know, it's kind of just an early, early morning. But I think Luke's probably still getting over his hangover from from Saturday. So I don't judge. <laughs> but anyway, guys, thank you for listening to Conspiracy Normal. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be in a new space. I will be moving and uh, be in a new kind of like little studio area. Bobby, hopefully you'll still get to come in and join us. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're going to actually uh, try to uh, kind of um, get this kind of all set, but uh, looking to have Nick Redford on, another British guy. So we'll have another another guy with a British voice in here. Uh, to hopefully get him on to talk about Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind, just kind of, kind of, just... Uh, fatal. Fatal Kind. Just going to kind of get that uh, kind of all, all confirmed, and uh, so hopefully we'll be back. Uh, in about a month or so, we're going to have Chris White back on to talk about sleep paralysis. So that's already been confirmed. But uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, coming on. And, Bobby, thank you for, for being here. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks on Conspiracy Normal. All righty. Yeah. See you, folks.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.